Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What condition conversation was in? Jay talking with Bradley J. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to him. 10.30 The radio's all yours now. I talked to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. WBZ, here we go. I feel great for some reason. I, I mean, except really great. I'll I'll talk about that later. It is Thanksgiving. Um, I have lots to give thanks for, and I will share that with you later. Why don't you think about the stuff that you give thanks for? It's not just filler. I genuinely want to know, and it's it's important to think about. I'll give you an hour to think about it. In the meantime, we have Bob Allison in in here, who was kind enough to come in just before Thanksgiving. How do you do, Bob? Robert Bob Allison, professor of history. Suffolk University, USS Constitution Museum, Board of Trustees, and you're a busy man, leader of the group called Rev 250, and that group coordinates historic events, historic sites in an effort to celebrate the 250th anniversary of events leading up to the revolution. And the next one would be, Bob? Massacre, Boston uh, Massacre. Okay. What, what do you... Well, I know we've talked about this before, but it doesn't hurt to do it again. What's planned? Well, March 5th, there will be all kinds of events, both a commemoration. The Bostonian Society is doing a lot focusing on Crispus addicts. And probably in the fall, we'll be working with the Boston Bar Association and other groups to do a reenactment of the Boston Massacre trials. Oh, good. The trials of Captain Preston and the trials of the soldiers. John Adams and Josiah Quincy defended these guys. Everyone in town wanted to hang them. But... Adams and Quincy wanted to show that these guys could get a fair trial here, which they did. And they were acquitted, except for two guys who were branded on the thumb and sent to New Jersey, which is probably more punishment than anyone deserved. But So that really was an indication that the courts worked here, that uh, you could get a fair trial. As Adams said when he was approached, will you defend this man who doesn't have any friends and the town hates him? Adams said in a free country, counsel is the last thing any man should want. Do you think he really said that, or is that legend? That's what he writes in his diary. He writes in his journal. That's what he said. We know that Josiah Quincy had been approached first, and Quincy was asked if he would take the case, and Quincy said, well, if I can get John Adams to assist me, which he did. Quincy's father couldn't believe he was taking this case because he thought, you know, everyone in town wants to hang these guys, and here you are defending them. And But Quincy also thought it was important to show that the courts worked, that they could get a fair trial. A jury could hear the, hear the evidence and not way not not be prejudiced because these guys were soldiers who had fired into a crowd and of course sam adams and other incendiary folks were livid on that they were samuel adams is sitting behind the prosecution table passing them notes and he writes editorials in the newspaper saying 
you know, these guys really got off and we should do something. And, you know, the uh, Ad- John Adams really says, if these men had been hanged, it would have been as foul a blot on us as the execution of the witches in 1692. Did they get along when when they weren't fighting or were they always at odds? I mean, did they come John? close to yeah, no, they fighting? Did, they did. I think... Um, each one understood the other. In fact, when John Adams goes to France, uh, he is asked, are you the famous Adams? And he has to explain, no, that's my cousin, Samuel. And he later writes that if the American Revolution was a blessing and not a curse, the name of Samuel Adams will be remembered. So, would you say there was an underlying respect? There was. There was. Although John Adams, you know, Samuel Adams seemed not to care about his appearance. His house was always falling down. His friend, but John Adams said, you go to dinner at his house, he knows which fork to use. Yeah. And is conscious that he knows this. Uh, you know, so Sam- he knows the rules. He yeah, just Sam- kind of ignores them. Yeah, yeah. Samuel was from a higher um, social echelon than John Adams was. You know, John Adams' father is a farmer. Samuel Adams, when he went to Harvard, he was fifth in his class at a time when class rank was determined by your family's social standing. So he was pretty well fixed. He runs, he, uh, one by one, he runs his father's businesses into the ground because his real interest is politics. So having underlying respect is probably why they were, one of the reasons they were able to work together. I don't know if we could do it now because it just doesn't see, uh, seem to be the underlying respect that there was at the time of the revolution between mm, yeah. the uh, founders. Well, I have to say that John Adams and John Hancock didn't really get along. And that is... Um, what was their beef? Well, John Hancock was kind of a self-important, vain guy, very rich. And also, it was never really clear what side he was on. I mean, his vanity was such that he could be seduced by someone who made him an offer or wanted to love him. And one of the great stories is when John Adams is proposing, or the Congress is debating creating a Continental Army. And John Hancock is the presiding officer and the Congress. And John Adams says, we're discussing creating an army. We also need to talk about who will command it. And I have someone in mind. Someone who has a large fortune. He's already committed to the cause. John Hancock hears this. Well, He's I, thinking it's and, a, and, a, and someone a who has mil- some, Someone who has military experience. Yeah. Well, Hancock's commander of the First Corps of Cadets. <laughs> yeah. And someone who is known and loved throughout all the colonies. Well, yeah. Hancock's the commander. Or he thinks he's known yeah. and loved. And so he's sitting up very tall in his chair. And... Out of his other eye, John Adams sees that George Washington is thinking, I wonder if he's talking about me. Washington gets up and leaves, and Adams says, the person I have in mind is George Washington of Virginia. And Hancock's face freezes. He glowers at Adams and never speaks to him again. He never got over that. Never never got over that. What was his uh, military experience? He had been commander of the First Corps of Cadets, basically... A militia group he had created, and then they chose him to be their officer. He bought them uniforms. And he was just kind of a gentleman. Yeah, yeah. He didn't really do anything. No. He wasn't like Washington no, no. out in the sticks yeah. doing yeah. it. Doing and, it. And, yeah, and Hancock you know, was, um, he, he had inherited a business from his uncle. His uncle and his, his uncle and aunt couldn't have children, so they adopted John Hancock. And so he takes over his uncle's business, and that's really what sets him up. And Samuel Adams sees this, and Samuel Adams, until about 1769, 1770, isn't a public figure. He uses James Otis, and Otis goes mad, and then it's John Hancock to be kind of the front person. And Hancock, wealthy, uh, everyone knows him. I mean, you see the portrait of Hancock at the MFA, all the gold on his jacket, which he wants you to see. He, and, you know, in that great portrait by Copley, he has his fingers are in his ledger book. 
and he's distracted. He's going to talk to you for a minute, but then he's going to get, get back, back to, to counting his yeah, money. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did become dedicated towards the end, right? Oh, sure. He did. I have, to, I have to say, he does. Uh, you know, he buys people firewood, and he does devote himself to the cause. And he becomes governor, and he is a well-loved figure. Um, you know, so we 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 historians um, sometimes criticize people who are actually better than we are. Isn't it's kind of undersung, really? There are not the biographies of John Hancock that there are of the rest, correct? Yeah, Bill Fowler wrote a really good biography of Hancock called "The Baron of Beacon Hill." You know, I think uh, Bill Fowler may be a little too favorable toward Hancock, but he also wrote a biography of Samuel Adams. But yeah, Hancock and is um, he probably would consider himself underrated, but it's he. The other story about Hancock, of course, is the Massachusetts con uh, convention meets to decide whether or not to ratify the Constitution. It's kind of a close thing, and Hancock was elected to be the presiding officer, but his gout flared up, so he couldn't attend. Whenever there was a troubling thing, Hancock's gout would flare up, so he's at home on Beacon Hill, and the supporters of the Constitution realize it's not going that well. And they need to get Hancock to come. And they go to Hancock and they say, look, if Massachusetts, if, you know, look, we hear that um, Virginia might not ratify. And if Virginia isn't a state, but nine other states, nine states have ratified, there's going to be, need to be a president. But if Virginia's not a state, Washington can't be president. We're going to need someone who is known and loved throughout the country. What do you think? Other than Washington, that might be Governor Hancock. So they had to come up with this yeah. subterfuge to get him out of the house? Well, and then they also come, they come up with a list of amendments. They want Hancock to come and present as his own, which he does. It gives a wonderful speech about the need to ratify this and then add amendments later, and it works. Massachusetts, the vote is 189 to 100, no, 187 to 169 wow. to ratify and then propose amendments later. Do we know the exact address of Hancock's house on Beacon Hill? We must. I yeah, mean, it's roughly, the there, no, the building was demolished in the 1860s. It was uh, next to the State House. If you look at the State House, the lawn in front of the West Wing would have been where Hancock's house stood. Right in the middle? Yeah, yeah, and in front and on that lawn. And so before the State House was built and after the State House was built, it stood there. They, you know, the Hancock's did not have children. And they wanted the state to take it to be a, or his heirs wanted the state to take it to be like a governor's house. But the state wasn't interested, and so the house was sold and demolished. Actually, it was, people came and bought pieces of it. So there's a doorway that the Bostonian Society had on display from the Hancock House. There's a staircase someplace, and then people bought pieces of it. Oliver Wendell Holmes said the Hancock House still exists, but it's in a billion pieces. Are there, are there must be, and I haven't thought of this, people out there who can say, yeah, uh, I'm, uh, John Hancock was my great-great-great-great-grandfather. So he didn't somebody have any, out he didn't, there... He didn't have a All right, Sam Adams then. How about him? Samuel Adams did, yes. Somebody out there can say that. And there are, of course, descendants of John Adams. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, and there's a striking family resemblance among the descendants of John Adams. And it's kind of eerie sometimes if you see... So you've met him? I've seen them, yes, yes. Huh. I've, uh, and All right, um, let's break and continue with Bob Allison. We haven't even started really yet, which is a good thing. I want to hear a little bit about this cool History of Boston course you're teaching at Harvard Extension, which kind of means that anyone can take it, right? Yes, anyone can. It's open enrollment. So, you know, Bobby in Charlestown or, or anybody could take this course. Is it? Uh, it's also offered online. So it is. Can, yes, so yes. Bill in, in Canada could yes, take it. Yeah. 
All right, let's break it. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm too busy. Here's the real Bradley J. Saying what he wants to say. Speech. Jay talking with Bradley J. Why don't you just go and sit down and listen? WBZ News Radio 1030. Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ. We're with Robert Bob Ellison. Um, among all his other credits, friend of Jay talking. Is, do you have that on your resume? I do, yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and you are. You also teach a course in the history of Boston. At the Harvard Extension yes. School? Yes. yes. Can you talk about that? Well, the Harvard Extension School was started around 1910 as a way of giving other pe- people other than Harvard students access to Harvard. And right now, it has um, the only unit at Harvard that is bigger in terms of students than the Extension School is the undergraduate Harvard College. And it's open enrollment. In order to get a degree, you need to have taken a certain number of courses, have a certain grade point average. And I got my undergraduate degree at the Extension School, so I'm really fond of the program. And it is less expensive than most other schools in Boston. So I have a class tonight. I have a student, a doctor from New York, who drives up other people who are very accomplished and high school students, retired people. So it's fun. So you do not have to be accepted? No, you can sign up for a class. You pay pay your money and you pass. Yep. And, and you then, get a high enough then, GPA, yeah. then you graduate. And see if you like it. You know, so you can see if you like it. And I it's it's I am really impressed with the kinds of students I have. So the history of Boston initially actually Walter Muir Whitehill, one of the great Boston historians, taught this class and they held their classes at Old South Meeting House. So this is a class that is was originally there in nineteen ten. Well, one, no, no, this of, class probably the 1960s. Okay. When Whitehill taught it, and then Tom O'Connor, great professor at Boston College, took took over the class. Okay. When, and so he taught it. When I was actually an undergraduate at the extension, Tom O'Connor was teaching this two-semester course on Boston history. And then he retired from B.C., but kept teaching in the extension school, and then finally decided he didn't want to go out at night. So I took over the class. Tom O'Connor taught it as a two-semester class. I do it as a one-semester, because I... No, I no less than half as much as yeah. O'Connor did, <laughs> and it's fun. And so we'll have you know we read a lot of books about Boston, and we have good guest speakers. Bill Martin, who wrote Back Bay, comes in to talk about Back Bay, uh, and so the class meets on Tuesday nights for two hours. It's also offered online. Now this isn't, I hope, a promotional thing for the course, but it, we, it's on it Tuesday can night, be. It but can it's, be. But it's also uh, offered online, so you can people all over the world. I've had students in the military, students who live in the Philippines, China, in Canada, other places who take the course. On this semester, I'm doing a course on the Constitution. Then next semester, in addition to the Boston class, I'm doing these two weekend classes, one on the Siege of Boston and then one on Plymouth, where we'll spend the weekend actually at Plymouth doing a whole Plymouth plantation. Wow. Um, I'm interested in the requirements of the course. You actually have the syllabus. You put it on 
Facebook, and I think I put it on my Facebook page well, as well. And the inter and interesting thing about it is, it really talks about the the grading and and what's required of yeah. you. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's serious business. It is serious business. I know it does, you know, it, it, I, I think it's fun to take it just to listen to me talk. Well, I, I don't know. That's someone's idea. That's worth something right there. But, you know, then you do have to do some serious work. Like you have to take a book about Boston or a movie, TV show about Boston and explain what's Boston about it. You know, it's not just it took place here. Could it have happened anywhere else? So the TV show Cheers, I've had a number of students write about that. Did, could this have happened anywhere else? Could you have that set someplace else? Or music-based set in Boston? Or what is distinctively Boston about it? Or novels like The Last Hurrah or The Late George Apley, some of the classic Boston novels you can choose. Mainly the books we're reading are um, not fiction. So we read Nat Hentoff's book, Boston Boy, a great book by one of the great characters in Boston. Carolyn Crockett has a recent book, People Before Highways, uh, Bill Martin's book, Nancy Seashull's new Atlas of Boston History. I mean, you have these really substantial works. And then a Boston, another paper is on a Boston monument or landmark, so a statue or historic site. You know, so you can do an analysis of the statue or the work of public art or an historic site. How do they tell the story? What story are they telling? And also, as with, as with Rev 250, we're really looking for places where things happened that might not be as well documented. So where was the Boston Gate? Or where were the fortifications at, say, Lamb's Dam or the Roxbury High Fort? You know, where were these places? So, so you, as a student, are doing the work of uncovering things and um, hopefully learning a lot more about the city. There's a certain, no, not a certain, there's serious a academic rigor required to pass this thing. And in, yes. your, yeah. in, in the syllabus, it talks about things that can cause you to fail or, or common yeah. common failings well yeah. like like footnotes and what else yeah you need to do you have to do footnotes and i will explain what kind of footnotes we're looking for because i know people weren't born knowing how to do footnotes and well plagiarism is a big thing we don't want people to do yeah you know, but we do i do have a couple of really good people who help with the grading and we read your papers and try to figure out ways for you to improve so that's really what we're doing is teaching and not bludgeoning you because you're not quite as smart as we are <laughs> okay which does happen in it at does other happen. venues it does happen now we did talk about the cost and i i am interested in the fact that while it may seem out of hand expensive it's cheaper per credit than say Suffolk University or other other colleges other colleges other excellent colleges other excellent thank you yeah, yeah. Uh, to the tune of well it's four hundred dollars a credit something like something that, like so, that. So, so, extension, four, but so a four credit course is like sixteen or eighteen hundred dollars I, I don't have the figure and a full credit course at a Another university would be, would be maybe uh, $4,000 a credit or something like so that. So four times that. It could be, yeah. yeah. Or not four times, but yeah, you know, much more. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, this is perfect timing. We have Mike in Tewksbury. Mike, you want to take the course? Uh, no, I got a degree in history, but uh, I've been a history buff since I was a kid in, in grammar school. But um, I, w I just want to ask a question regarding... Um, the Revolutionary War period. Um, uh, uh, are you aware of a, um, of a historian by the name of J. L. Bell? Oh, I know John Bell very well. Yes. 
uh, I've read his blog. I love oh, I yeah. love the stories he puts on his oh, blog. Oh, yeah, he is great. Yeah, yeah. Boston, 1775. Doing, yes, and I've been doing some research on the original guns, because I was up at Fort Ticonderoga many years ago, mm. and, uh, um, I, you know, I, I read all about the, 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 the Knox uh, really cannon, yeah. and um, uh, I understand... Um, they have one cannon uh, up at the Bunker Hill Monument. Yes. And and also, I think they have one out at the um, museum on uh, North Concord. Yes, yes, they do. Um, and so, he, Mr. Bell wrote a book called The Road to Concord, yes. all about um, some stolen cannons mm-hmm. that the, yeah. that the um, um, militia stole from the British. Well, they, they were spirited out of Boston. They were at the North Battery, and they were... You know, in a farm wagon filled with manure, they were buried under this stuff. They carted them out of Boston, and he then, you know, uh, Mr. Bell argues that that it was pursuing those cannons, which was what Gage was doing when he sends the um, troops out to Concord, actually to find these cannon that the Patriots had stolen. It's a good now. Point. Where did they get them from? From the British Army? Yeah. Well, the the you know Boston was fortified, so and. You know, we think about it, it wasn't that the British Army had these cannon, but Boston had been fortified, and so there would have been pieces of artillery like that that were part of the fortifications of Boston. Castle Island had had uh, some artillery and some on these batteries to defend the town. Okay, so basically they loaded them up on a, on a uh, wagon and yep. covered them with manure? Yeah, and they took and them out by way of Boston Neck along what's now Washington Street. And they had to get right. by. Did they have to get by the sneak them by the century? Yeah, they did. And who's going to want to dig into manure to see if there might be cannon under there? You know, <laughs> and, and and you know, in most of these towns, there would have been you know privies, and there would be night soil men who would empty the privies. They would go around right. and dig out the privies. So it was a well, wagon filled with uh, stuff. With night soil. Out. Yeah, night soil. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate Thanks, it. Mike. That's a phrase I hadn't heard of, and that's something I don't want to be. That's a night, a soil, night soil. A night yeah. soil yeah. soilsman. Uh, okay. Thanks for the thanks for the call, Mike. And in general, I usually I don't solicit phone calls, but you know this is kind of an easygoing celebration of some local history. It's cool that Thanksgiving history is local history. Yes, all the country celebrates Thanksgiving. That's but, right. But it's for us. It's local history. It is local right history. here. Right. Yeah. All right. We're gonna break. Get some news, some weather, and uh, talk to you about the history of Thanksgiving with our guest Bob Allison. You realize this may be the most important weather forecast in history. Going well, weather. Yeah, you want a prediction about the weather. Okay, we're ramping up to uh, Thanksgiving here. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, patchy fog. 34 in some colder suburbs. High of 54 today, a couple of showers. Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, very windy. That's the thing. Clouds, shower or two around the city in the morning. Some sunny breaks for the rest of the day. And wind as high as 50 miles per hour. Looking beyond Thanksgiving. Mostly sunny and chilly on Friday. Less wind and sunshine and chilly on uh, Saturday as well. Maybe some rain. Maybe even some snow on Sunday. Bob Ellison is with us. Hi, Bob. We're talking Thanksgiving. Yes. Tell me about this. You know what? We're going to learn about Mort's... Mort's relation. Relation. Yeah. Very interesting thing, and uh, but, but first it's Renee in Medford. Thanks for taking me up on my invitation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. 
computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Station to call us at 617-254-1030. Hello, Renee. Yes. Yes, how are you tonight? Great, say hi, to, say hi to Bob Ellison. Profe- I have to call him Professor Bob Ellison, especially because he's talking about, um, he teaches a course on Boston. And what I wanted to say was that um, I do see that your topic is Thanksgiving, so I'm going to try to be concise. I'm good. not, usually, I'm very verbose, I'm going to be good now. But I took a course on the history of Roxbury with Byron Rushing when I went, um, yes, when I went to um, Boston, uh, Roxbury Community College where I have my associate degree. And I'm proudly, it took me five years to get it, okay? So I'm just letting people know I did it. But um, the thing was that when I, when we did it, we had to specialize. We did a tour and we had to, you know, specialize. We discussed the history. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's such a great wealth uh, of history. But my, I mean, I lived like about less than 100 feet from the graveyard, the original graveyard. And it's like, so you know how you can't move graveyards, Mm -hmm. you can't move stuff, this is history. So that's the beautiful thing about history, regardless of what things happen around them, that is the history. So I appreciate it, I could see that. So when we did the tour, what I asked particularly was, I was looking for the statue of Warren. Now, I grew up in Roxbury, Mm -hmm. I was born in in Boston, and and, um, I grew up in in Roxbury, and I remember this big, huge statue. Yes. It did begin to turn uh, uh, green because mm-hmm. a friend of mine told me it was copper. Mm-hmm. I thought it was whatever, but it disappeared. Yes. And I asked for my course. I was like, "Where did it go?" Now I believe now, of course, perhaps someone scrapped it. But no. the issue is that there is certain history, as you yes. well know, regardless of how people feel about the mm-hmm. people, whoever it was. Mm-hmm. Where did it go? How did it go? Okay, I can tell you. Hold on, we're going to find out where it went. I can tell you, because that is a big story, and I think that is something that really should be returned. When they were widening Warren Street, now the statue stood across, in the middle of the street where Warren was born, so it was by his birthplace. The birthplace no longer was there, but there was the Warren House there, which was had been a hotel, and they were widening the street. So they took the statue, this would have been, I think, in the late 1960s, and they took the statue and they put it in storage, in a DPW storage place. And then they said, yeah, we're going to bring the statue back. So meanwhile, it's in storage for a few years as they're widening the street. 
and the headmaster of Roxbury Latin School, where Warren was an alum. Roxbury Latin at one time was in Roxbury. Now it is in you know, West Roxbury in the borderlands with Dedham. And the headmaster of Roxbury Latin said, oh, why is this statue in storage? We really should have it on display. We'll put it at Roxbury Latin, where Warren went. So off it went. It's at Roxbury Latin. And it's kind of a sore point. I know that uh, Byron Rushing wants to get it back. I'd like to get it back to Roxbury because Warren is really integral to the history of Roxbury. And Roxbury, as you said, has this great revolutionary history, colonial history. There are like five or six governors buried in that little burying ground. Uh, The Dudleys were part of it. And John Elliott was from Roxbury. So you have that history there. And Roxbury has, it's an essential to the history of the country, really. And so you have Warren removed. And, you know, we commemorate Warren in Charlestown, of all places. So he lived in Roxbury, but he died in Charlestown. So why isn't his statue in Roxbury? I'm really glad you brought that up, Renee, because I think it should come back. Yay, Renee. Great call. Thanks. Appreciate it. There she's gone. Great job. Oh, and as far as you're getting your degree, uh, Renee. That's a, that's a great accomplishment. It is. Okay, it's tough to... You know, chronologically now how to insert Mort's relation. So let's do it now. Tell me about this document that I've heard about. It yeah. seems like a primary source for lots of information concerning yeah. the whole yeah, pilgrimage. It is. The two books that can tell us the most about this, one is Mort's relation. And one thing we know is that uh, we don't know who Mort was. We have an idea, though. We do have an idea. Most of the book seems to have been written by Edward Winslow, who is someone who came on the Mayflower, and he wrote the series of letters back. It's kind of a diary form, and talks about what's, hap- excuse me, what's happening day to day, and then a couple of the little expeditions they take, sends it back to London to have someone print it. And we think the person who printed it was a guy named George Morton, as he signs the preface G. Mort, M-O-U-R-T. And hence, the book comes down to us as Mort's relation. The other real primary source is William Bradford's journal. And Bradford is the second governor of the Plymouth Colony and keeps this journal. And actually, that manuscript is in the state library at the state house. But it is the Colonial Society of Massachusetts, of which I am a member, as well as vice president. And I should say Peter Drummy, who was on last night. Yeah. Richard Pickering, who's been on, are also members of the Colonial Society, and we publish documents, and we're publishing a new edition of Bradford's Journal, which is one of the great sources for this period. But anyway, Mort's relation has the, it is the one description we have of the first Thanksgiving. You know, when you read this journal with an eye toward that, you think, that, well, just a few pages before we get to the first Thanksgiving, we have the uh, group, including um, Winslow, had gone to call on Massasoit. They went out to see Massasoit, who was the grand sachem of the uh, Wampanoag. So about two days ago, yeah, they yeah. headed out to see Massasoit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about exa- where geographically? What's now Middleborough is where um, Massasoit lived. And they were in Plymouth. They're in Plymouth. So they truck out to see Massasoit. And he, um, the Indians didn't eat regularly. And when they had food, they would eat. And this is something difficult for the English to get used to. And the Indians are good at going for a long period. For thousands of years, yeah. the Indians' entire bodies are, yeah. have and been... They've 
suited to eating when you have it and not uh, exactly, freaking out exactly. when you don't. And the Indians do practice agriculture. They grow corn, beans, and um, squash, and they'll dry them over the winter, and they'll dry fish, alewives, and other kinds of fish. And Mort's relation really describes the kind of food they're eating. So they go see Massasoit, and there are 40 people, and Massasoit boils two big fish, and all these 40 people are eating. You know, have a, everyone has a mouthful. The pilgrims had brought along some grain that they turn into kind of a porridge, and that's all they eat. And they're there with Massasoit, and they realize we've got to get back to Plymouth because physically we won't be able to make the trip unless we get back to Plymouth because they don't have anything to eat. So they have at least days, and they're not, not really yeah. eating anything. And yeah. they're getting physically weak. Yeah. If they don't leave now, yeah. Yeah. they won't be able to make yeah. it back ever. Yeah. And, then, and then they realize, you know, they had been planting. And the, these weren't farmers who had come over for the most part. They were kind of urban people. And the Indians had taught them how to plant corn when corn doesn't grow in Europe. So it's something the, the pilgrims had brought a couple of barrels of peas. And they did find some corn in what's now Truro, which they had taken to Plymouth. And then Squanto um, and Samoset are two native people who come to see them in Plymouth and show them how you plant corn. You put an alewife in with a corn seed. You plant the corn seed along with a bean and squash, and the three grow together. The Indians called them the three sisters and at the end of 1621 remember they had arrived in uh, the fall winter of 1620 they actually have a good harvest they had planted barley and they had planted corn and they had planted peas and for the most part they did well so they know we're not going to starve next year and so governor bradford you know john carver had been elected governor early in 1620 he dies of heat stroke when he's out they're all out planted. He dies of heat stroke in April of 1620, not used to this climate. And then um, the governor says we'll have a harvest feast. And let me see if I can find the um, description of this, which I had marked earlier. But, yeah, because they had had such a tough time of this. And now they know they are going to survive. Well, I can ask you another question or two, yes, and then during the break you can find it yeah. if that's easier. Would you say that... Uh, there's no way possible that the pilgrims would have survived without the natives? Oh, yeah, they couldn't have. Would totally have died. They, they would have. because, And you look at what happened in Jamestown, where most of the people die. And in Plymouth, they don't. And it's because they make peace with uh, Massasoit and the Wampanoag. Who also, Massasoit has, sends his emissaries, Samoset, who came from the coast of Maine. And this is something that really astonishes the pilgrims. They knew the Indians were watching them. And they get to Cape Cod, and they'll keep seeing Native people in the distance. And when they approach them, they're gone. And then they get to what's now East Ham, and they're in their shallop. They're spending the night on the beach, and as they're preparing to leave, Indians come out of the woods and start firing at them. And the pilgrims all have their guns in their boat, so they have to get back to the boat to fire back. And they call this their first encounter, and it's not a friendly one. And they get to Plymouth. And Plymouth had been an Indian village. And the, most of the people had died of a plague brought by another English expedition. And so now they build their um, great house. And they build a stockade. And they know that there are people in the woods watching us. And then one morning, this tall native, who's they say he's naked, he's wearing a loincloth, walks into the village. This is March. Pretty so it's naked. really cold. And... He start, and they all lock themselves in to the, into their house, and he starts pounding on the door saying, Good morning, Englishman. Good morning, Englishman. This guy knows how to speak English. Wow. 
And then the next day, he comes back with Squanto. And Squanto had been to Spain. Squanto had grown up in Patuxet, which was the village that was on this site. He had been kidnapped in 1614 by an English trader named Thomas Hunt, taken to Spain, sold as a slave. A Spanish priest frees him, and he makes his way to England, where he works in the household of the, um, one of the directors of the Council for New England. So here is a guy who has seen more of the world than the pilgrims have. And he is the one who shows them how you plant corn. And also, he becomes their emissary with Massasoit. Massasoit wants the support of the... thinks these English might be useful to him because he's now contesting with the Narragansett, who is west. And the Narragansett realizes the Wampanoags have been weakened by a plague. So he can... the Narragansett can push toward Massachusetts Bay and... Well, Massasoit sees that these pilgrims might be useful to him. How long had they been here before Massasoit showed up? You think? Before? Massasoit, uh, before the well, Squanto came well, knocking on the door. Yeah. What, Massasoit was watching from our hill to see how it all turned out, right? As, yeah, yeah, as, yeah. As I understand. Well, they had built a great house. How long do you suppose they had been here at that point? Well, this would have been in March, so they arrived oh, okay. in December. March, so, yeah, so they've been yeah, here a while. Yeah, they had so for four months, they they had not made fr friendly connections yet. No, they hadn't. No, the Indians were watching them, but letting them, you know, build their place, and then we'll see okay. what they do. Did had the Indians seen peas or barley before? Probably. You think? Well. Probably. I mean, those are things that would grow here, okay. too. So barley is really the grain of Europe. I'm not sure if it grows here. Corn certainly doesn't grow in um, Europe. But they have um, other things here. They note the strawberries and the gooseberries and the raspberries, cranberries also. They, the pilgrims call these cranberries because the stalk, the little stem, looks like a crane's neck. And that's another staple. Well, that's you, good to know. That's, can, yeah, that yeah. right there is worth... Worth the, the price whole of admission. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's take a break. It's WBZ. I've got something to say. Yes, Brad. Jay talking. Jay. Bradley J. WBZ. News Radio 1030. Are we still having a conversation? We were having a conversation. Really? You should say something. That's a family conversation, man. Now the king of conversation. You talk a lot. He's talking midnight right till five. How about the radio? BC's the radio station. Say something! With that crazy day talk. Bradley J. Jay talking. Talking to Jay Talk. Talk to Jay Talk. WBZ News Radio 1030. We're with Bob Allison, historian and uh, good guy. He's going to, in a moment, talk. He's going to read from Mort's reflection. What is it, Mort's? Mort's relation. Relation. This document that, that is a, the real, the only real description of the first Thanksgiving, right? It is. But yes. first. I'm going to do something that may seem excessive. It may seem excessive, but I'm going to do it anyway because I have the time. And it's interesting to hear the last names because they'll ring bells to you. And maybe no one's ever done it before on the radio. I don't know. I'm going to read to you the names of the people on the, on the Mayflower. There are not that many. And it's nice. It's, you get a sense of who they are from their names, I think. John Alden. Isaac and Mary Allerton. John Allerton. John and Eller, Eleanor Billington. You notice the names are all very similar. Bill and Dorothy Bradford, William and Mary Brewster, Richard Brittenbridge, 
Peter Brown with an E. William Button, B-U-T-T-E-N. Robert Carter. John and Catherine Carver. Coming over on that ship. Not very many of them. Tiny, tiny ship. Through the storms, through the weather. Took, an, took a big chance altogether. They had to know each other very intimately. You have James and Mrs. Chilton. Richard Clark. Francis Cook with an E. Humility Cooper. Why can't more people be named Humility? John Crackstone. Edward Doty. Francis and Sarah Eaton. Thomas English. Moses Fletcher. Edward and Mrs. Fuller. Samuel Fuller. Richard Gardner. John Goodman. William Hobeck. John Hook with an E. The E is important. Stephen and Elizabeth Hopkins. John Langmore. William Lathan, all together on this tiny boat. They had to know each other's business intimately. They had to get to know each other very well. Edward Lester, Edmund Margison, Christopher and Mary Martin. Desire Minter, what a name. Each of these people has a story. Each of these people, well, many of them have descendants that may be listening right now. Ellen, Jasper, Richard, and Mary Moore. That's M-O-R-E. William and Alice Mullins, Degory Priest, Solomon Prower, John and Alice Rings, Rigsdale, Thomas Rogers, Henry Sampson, George Sewell, S-O-U-L-E, Miles and Rose Standish, that, the, the, uh, the Standishes, Elias Story, Edward Thompson, Edward and Agnes Tilly, John and Joan Tilly. Thomas and Mrs. Tinker, William Trevor, John Turner, William, excuse me, Richard Warren, William and Susanna White, Roger Wilder, we're almost done, Thomas Williams, Edward and Elizabeth Winslow, which is notable, as you'll see in a moment, Gilbert Winslow, and Miss, just a guy named Mr. Ellie or Mr. Eli, depending on how you pronounce it, and Dorothy, John Carver's maidservant. And there they all, I didn't name all the kids because of time, sorry kids. Two worth noting, William and Mary Brewster's children were named Love, and even more interestingly, Wrestling. Wrestling. That's a person's name. Interesting. And then, of course, the baby Oceanus was born while they were at sea. So there it is. Now, Edward Winslow mm -hmm. is thought to be the author of yes. this very this Mort's relation. Yes, and here we have a letter sent from New England, and this letter became kind of the preface to the book, and it is sent to his dear and loving or loving and old friend, and we think the loving and old friend was George Mort, hence it becomes Mort's relation. And you shall understand that in this little time that a few of us have been here. We have built seven dwelling houses and four for the use of the plantation and have made preparation for diverse others. So think about all those names you just read living in seven houses in this little settlement. Wow, seven houses, uh, by 100 people divided yeah, by yeah, seven. Yeah, yeah. We set the last spring some 20 acres of Indian corn and sowed some six acres of barley and peas. And according to the manner of the Indians, we manured our ground with herring or rather shads, which we have in great abundance, and take with great ease at our doors. Our corn did prove well, and, God be praised, we had a good increase of Indian corn, 
and our barley indifferent good. But our peas not worth the gathering, for we feared they were too late sown. They came up very well and blossomed, but the sun parched them in the blossom. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men fowling, so that we might have a after so that we might after a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside served our company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their greatest king Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you, partakers of our plenty, that we wish you, uh, George Morton and others in England, to come here and partake. This is the only description we have of the first Thanksgiving. And it's a harvest feast where they, they go out, they say, hey, let's get some turkeys and geese and other fowl and feast because the harvest has come in. And then the Indians hear this, they hear them shooting their guns, and so Massasoit and 90 Indians come, and they bring five deer that they have killed. So it wasn't really a plan? No, it wasn't a plan. It was, you know, because they've harvested, and a harvest feast is kind of a custom, but they had had a tough year. This is their first real year here. And so it is a spontaneous thing that they spent three days doing this. Is these the same Indians? I'm just going to say Indians because Mort says Indians. Yeah. That they had visited in East Ham four days earlier? No, that's a different group okay. Ma- out in Middleborough. So yeah. the Massasoit's in Middleborough. Okay. Aspinet is the Sachem okay. out in Nauset, what's now East Ham. All right. So these were really local Indians that just yes. actually heard the gunfire. Heard the gunfire. And said, what's going on? Yeah. Let's, let's go visit them. Oh, yeah. you're going to have a feast? Oh, we'll yeah. go get some deer. Yeah, yeah. So it is a spontaneous gathering, and uh, that's... What we know. So it's we, interesting to note that on a whim they can just go find five deer like that. Yeah. He yeah. says it's usually not like, not that plentiful, no. least, but yeah. still, let a lot more deer then than now. Let's yeah. talk to Frank in Boston real briefly, and I, I hope there's some more in Mort's relation that you can relate, because it's you can tell it's very primary. Frank, what's going on? Hey, sir. Good evening. Even. I uh, like I heard um, that the, the 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 original settlers in George or in Virginia starved to death, and the Pilgrims almost starved to death. How is that possible? With how was that possible with all the fish and the game uh-huh. and the birds around them? How is that possible? That's a really good question. Uh, and, thank you. And you know, I, I guess you can. Thanks, Frank. I'm going to let... That's a great question. Yeah, so, can you answer it in one minute, or do you want more time? I think I can answer it in one minute. Uh, I know one of the reasons. Who doesn't keep that long? And so you have to eat it when you have it. So in Jamestown, they do send guys to the shore to they go get oysters. And But, you know, oysters aren't going to keep. You have to keep getting them. And here, they are able to gather things, but then they don't keep and they don't really understand planting. And I know in Jamestown, too, the rats get into the storehouse they have and eat most of what they have stored. 
Now, well, you have an answer, too, Brad. Well, also, they brought the wrong size fish hooks, and they, they, they didn't did. know any, anything about they fishing did. at all. It took them forever to figure fishing out. We'll answer that this in more detail. We'll talk to George in Oregon after this break. Bob's going to stay. Yay, it's WBZ Boston's News Radio. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.